there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning how to reinvent yourself after you leave the military, and if you're interested in learning more about how to build a meaningful career in emerging and high-growth technology companies, in particular startups, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the chief executive officer of a startup that's powered by artificial intelligence and machine learning to help fundraisers in the nonprofit world and businesses more strategically identify and target the right donors and customers. But before I introduce you to Sean Oles, I want to make sure you've signed up to get a free copy of the Just Brew It ebook. It's got incredible career advice from some of the super accomplished, wonderful professionals who've been guests on T4C. And it's really easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box to download the free ebook will be right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Sean Olds, the CEO of Boodle AI, which is the leading machine learning power predictive analytics platform that empowers philanthropies to find new donors and also helps companies find their best customers. Prior to co-founding Boodle in April 2016, Sean was a serial investor in a whole variety of startups, as well as the managing director and chief operating officer at the Bella Wood Group, also known as BWG, which is a proprietary merchant banking platform. And he was also client initiative leader and director of business development for Essex Lake Group in Abu Dhabi. That helps clients solve complex business problems, and it has over 10 years of extensive research on data-driven intelligence techniques, robotics, artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, advanced algorithms, software, and big data processing to do just that. Sean is a graduate of West Point Military Academy, and he served four years as a captain and a platoon leader in the U.S. Army. And he also got his law degree after he graduated from Northwestern University and his MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. And we're going to be talking about that because this man does not fool around. He got both of those degrees simultaneously. Sean, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh. It is such a pleasure to get this opportunity. And let me begin, Sean, by thanking you for your service to this country. One of the greatest opportunities I've had. So before we get into what you do at Boodle AI, I thought it would be a good idea for you to explain to our listeners what Boodle does. How does this platform support philanthropies and fundraisers and companies to connect with new donors and new customers? Absolutely. No, I appreciate the opportunity. So Boodle 
is a predictive analytics company, and we leverage machine learning as well as third-party data that we bring to bear to help a philanthropy that's trying to find new donors or a company that's trying to find new customers. At the end of the day, it's it's an engine that looks to what are the best types of people for each organization based on their fit and affinity. So we're not looking a lot of Predictive analytics companies look at intent-based data. What websites did you click on? What links have you clicked on before? Or they look at just wealth capacity. How much money do you have, thereby being a corollary to how much you should spend? What we want to do is really find people who have a fit and affinity towards a cause or a specific product. Just in case some of our listeners don't know what predictive analytics are, could you give us a quick 101? Sure. Predictive analytics is nothing more than taking past experiences, so data on what has happened before, and trying to make a future prediction on that. And so very simply how we do it is we take a base of good donors or good customers, and we enrich them with various data points about their background. So where they've lived, where they've worked, what they've spent money on, what they've donated to before. And we use machine learning algorithms to create what's called a model. And in Boodle parlance, we use the term guide-on. And that guide-on then defines what a good donor or a good customer looks like. And now when a company has a list of, say, free users, say it's a software company trying to sell its software, and they have a series of free users, they could feed those free users into the model to determine which of those free users is most likely to become a paid subscriber. Cool. Where did this idea first come from, Sean? Because from what I've read, Boodle was originally, I think, intended to be a political fundraising tool. Actually, we it was born out of two people's frustration. So the original idea came from my co-founder, France Hong, who I have known for over 20 years. He and I were at West Point together, but did not know each other well there. We ended up meeting in the U.S. Army Ranger School. Both graduated from that and stayed in touch over the years. In addition to everything I've done professionally, I've spent 25 years serving on a variety of different nonprofit boards. I started the day I got out of West Point serving on a board focused on youth education. And for 25 years, I've always done some sort of youth education, board of directors, as well as several veteran service organizations. And the only aspect of my philanthropic service that I've disliked has been the fundraising. And it's not asking for money. I'm a tech entrepreneur. I have to ask for money for a living. It was how ineffective and inefficient it was. And ironically, France, my co-founder, had been asked to do political fundraising right before we started the company and met the same frustration there that he had met fundraising in the nonprofit world. And that was when he approached me about the idea of why can't we bring commercially available technology into the nonprofit world? And my only recommendation at the time was, let's not do what most tech companies do, which is build a commercial product and then walk into the nonprofit world and say, okay, all of you circular nonprofits, squeeze yourself into the square hole because we know what's best for you. I said, let's build something that is geared towards the nonprofit space. And from day one, even though France's last frustration came out of political fundraising, We wanted to stay away from political fundraising for two key reasons. One is from a business perspective, it's just a very small market. It's $7 billion a year, whereas this country generously donated 
last year over $450 billion to charity. But secondly, politics has become so divisive in this country that we didn't want to get identified as being on one side or the other. We'd rather focus on charities that are doing amazing work in a variety of different fields from homelessness to veteran services to hunger and and help in those causes and focus there. Your website says the truth is that a lot of nonprofits aren't using AI because they're either unsure of it or unaware of it. So what difference does the Boodle platform make for nonprofits? So the big difference is we've made it very simplistic for them. We said to our engineering team four years ago, imagine, and this was for commercial or nonprofit customers, you've got to make things as easy as possible if you want adoption. I said, imagine that our end user knows how to Google, watch Netflix, and order on Amazon, because those are things the majority of computer users can do. And if we can make it that simple, then we can get adoption. And that's what we've done. When we onboard nonprofits right now, they're onboarding in about one to three hours. And after that, the amount of time they spend on it a month is largely driven by their own desires and how much they want to dig into the data they have. But it's not requiring someone to learn a whole new system and become the resident member of staff who manages the platform. So speaking of data, do you have any data right now on the nonprofit clients that you have onboarded and the difference that this technology has made in their bottom line? Absolutely. We've been very fortunate to see some very quick results. So our first 90 clients, so we launched, while we launched in April of 16 or started building the company in April of 16, we only launched in Q3 of last year. So we're coming up on our, June will be our 12th month in business or out in the public forum. And in those 11 months, we've added 90 clients to the platform. Our smallest client raised just over $100,000 last year. Our largest client raised over $330 million last year. So we've got kind of the variety in there. And we've got all sorts of verticals. We've got animal-related charities, health-related charities, veteran service organizations, universities, What we have seen are just some really neat stories. We have seen organizations, we had one in particular a couple of months ago that found amongst its email distribution list, which uh, a newsletter list, which is a place that a lot of nonprofits don't want to solicit because they don't want people to unsubscribe. We were able to get the organization comfortable with prioritizing that list and only reaching out to the top percentage of people. And in that list found them a $20,000 donor that was in that list. We've had other organizations that saw major gifts increase by over 56%. We have seen some organizations that are actually not using us directly for fundraising, but for outreach. So we had an organization that noticed it was getting a lot of unsubscribes when it would send its monthly newsletter out. And part of it was that they appeal to four very distinct areas. And they noticed that when the headline of the newsletter focused on one of those areas, people interested in the other areas would unsubscribe. And so they've actually used our platform to target and only send the newsletter to people who care about that particular area that they're sending to. Cool. You mentioned that even though you only launched in Q3 of 2019, you joined as the company was starting in April of 2016. So it's now been over four years. Could you kind of tease out for us 
what you would say your primary responsibilities are as chief executive officer? Because I'm guessing they've really evolved over the last four years. Absolutely. And on a daily basis, they fluctuate. Overall, I am responsible for leading the company and growing the company. At the end of the day, what that means is I do everything from sit in strategy meetings with the chief executive team to I have been the Starbucks runner before. So that's the nature of a startup and the nature of the leadership team. We kind of have to be jacks of all trades. Right now at the phase we're at where we are coming up on a year in business and we'll probably raise an A round sometime next year, I'm very focused on fundraising, meeting with venture capitalists, also very focused on working with our sales team, which has grown significantly since we launched, obviously, and also working with our customer success team. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have delighted customers, you're not going to be able to stay in business. You anticipated one of my questions. So you haven't yet gone out for venture funding. Did you have seed funding originally or is it all self-funded? We did. We have gone through three rounds of funding. We did what were called SAFES, Simple Agreements for Future Equity. We did two of those, one in 2016, one in 2017. And then in January of 2019, we closed our first seed equity round, which converted those two SAFES. So we have raised a total of $5.5 million there. And at the end of last year, we launched a small convertible debt note which we probably would have closed out in February had it not been for COVID-19 and are hoping to close out at some point this month. But we have definitely done significant fundraising. It's been mostly from individuals, high net worth individuals, angel groups, and a few family offices. Okay. So you mentioned COVID. We are doing this interview now in early June of 2020. How has COVID changed your responsibilities and changed maybe the landscape for Boodle AI, if at all? Sure. Well, on the negative side, as I mentioned, it definitely hurt us on the fundraising side. People are are not investing as quickly as they may have in just the last quarter of last year. That said, I would love to say that France and I were smart enough four years ago to sit down and plan for a pandemic. We were not, but we are very grateful that the platform we built is very well suited for this pandemic time. Uh, Nonprofits have lost access to many of their traditional forms of fundraising, their galas, their races, their face-to-face meetings, and they are scrambling and struggling right now to find ways to continue their fundraising which is what will support their ability to continue their mission. And so since just February of this year, we've added over 30 clients to the platform and onboarded them while they were sitting in their living rooms or kitchens. And they were able to use the results, the predictions from our platform to reach out to donors sitting in their living room and kitchen. And we've been able to do the same thing with for-profit companies, onboarding the sales teams as they sit in their homes. Incredible. Sean, if any of our young listeners would like to get into the world of machine learning and AI, what advice do you have for them, especially for those who may still be in college? What skills are most important for them to cultivate? 
if they're still in college, your, your programming skills, your data science skills are going to be some of the most important you can grab. And any major university is, is going to have those classes available. For those who have already graduated and maybe didn't get a hard science degree, online courses are absolutely phenomenal in what you can learn there going to a Udemy or other online portals, and they're not that expensive. And you can get some of the basics. After that, it's getting out, getting real world experience. I see many people who are going out and finding friends that are working at machine learning companies and potentially getting unpaid internships, just getting an opportunity to actually write code, to work, to deal with data, to see how others do it, you know, have someone there to provide the professional development, but kind of learn while they're doing whatever else they may be focused on professionally. Terrific. So let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to West Point and you got a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated in 94? I absolutely knew what I was going to do with that degree, and it is not what I'm doing now. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? I grew up to a father who was in the military. I had my entire career path planned from platoon leader to chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. (laughs) Uh, I, I knew I was going to be a military officer my entire career. And but for a parachute accident four years in, I would have endeavored to stay in for a full career and serve. So I was very fortunate that a computer science degree helped me a great deal in the private sector. In fact, it's what got me my start in the startup space. I went right after the army to a consulting firm that was one of the first consulting firms in the late 90s that said it would take its payment in half cash, half equity. And so one of our first clients, the firm I worked for was called Kurt Salmon Associates. They were a supply chain firm. And one of our first clients was a company called eToys.com. And because I had a computer science degree and it was a tech company, I was put on as one of the young staff consultants on that project. And I got to work with that company pre-A round and went through it, A round, B round, C round, IPO, $7 billion valuation, debt spiral, bankruptcy, all in about three years. And it was a fascinating experience. Oh my gosh. So you did not sell your shares before the company went under. So I actually was a consultant. So I didn't own, I didn't own shares in the company. And, and that actually probably allowed me to learn more because I wasn't. So a lot of people, when they hold shares in the company and they become very focused on the economical side of things, you might miss some things, I guess, if you will. Because I was being paid as a consultant, I took a little bit more objective view to things. And and because of that, I got to learn a lot more. Let's just go back briefly to your time in the service before you got out into the working world. You were in the army for four years as a captain in which you served as a platoon leader, as a company executive officer and battalion signal officer. How do you think those experiences helped you when you got out of the service in 1998? They were invaluable in a a variety of different ways. First and foremost is the leadership opportunity. When I graduated West Point and went into my first unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I was 22 years old and I was given command of a platoon of 64 men and women in the United States Army aged 17 to 45. And I was 22 years old. 
it was several decades later that I was in charge of that many people again. When I went into consulting, many of the executives I would consult to weren't leading organizations that large. And so that leadership opportunity was absolutely invaluable. And when you're dealing with leadership where life and death can be a factor, that puts in an even finer point on the type of leadership you do. Because people don't necessarily follow you just because they're being commanded to. They follow you because they respect you. I had a wonderful platoon sergeant taught me early on. There's a much bigger difference on whether a soldier follows your orders or is with you in the orders that you give. Oh, that's a great image. And that's that's got to be true in the private sector just as much as it is in, in service. Absolutely. If you can learn how to inspire people and and truly lead and, and not just simply direct people, that's something I've carried with me in every startup. Being humble has been something that my father taught me early on. The military definitely taught me. And it's something that you have to carry with you in each one of the teams. And I've never, never had a startup where we've tried to establish a hierarchy. We have a very flat team and everybody supports each other and, and works towards a common goal. Fantastic. Well, speaking of common goals, four years after you left the Army and eight years after you graduated from West Point, after you had worked in between for that supply chain company that worked on operations and technologies, you decided to go back to school to get your law degree and your MBA. And besides being a glutton for punishment, doing both of them at the same time, what was your thinking, Sean, as to why you should get both degrees concurrently? Or is it simultaneously? It was it was a great degree program. Northwestern was actually one of the first to get the program down to three years. Most schools at that point, if you did both degrees simultaneously, it took about four years to do. So the nice aspect of that was I started school as a law student in my first year. And three years later, I got to graduate with my law school classmates. My second year, I started as a first year MBA student so that two years later, I graduated with my MBA class. And for me, one of the big reasons when I went back to school, I went back much later than a lot of people go to grad school. So I was the fifth oldest person in my law school class and one of the top 10 oldest in my business school class. And for me, part of going back, along with learning some of the great skills you get out of both of those programs and both those degrees, was the network that you build. And as a, a startup entrepreneur, networks are invaluable. I'm never going to be an expert in investment banking, but I have classmates who that's what they've done for a career. And to be able to pick up the phone and call on one of my classmates and have a 15 minute conversation on some of the finer points of investment banking is invaluable. And I, I didn't go into the practice of law. And while I have a business partner who's a very good lawyer, if there are areas of the law he's not conversant in, being able to reach out to law school classmates and either bring in their firm or just get their point of view has been absolutely invaluable. So if you had it to do all over again, do you think you would still get the law degree? Absolutely. And, and the other big reason, this was specific to me, I got a computer science degree. When I learned programming, it was taught in a very object-oriented way, which caused me to think that way. Law school forces you to think in a far different way. And it has been invaluable in many of the endeavors I've done since law school. 
speaking of the endeavors that you've done since law school, since your MBA program, when you graduated, you took a job as a senior manager at PTRM, which is a management consultancy that works with senior executives to develop and implement innovative operational strategies to deliver breakthrough results. And you were there for almost three years. How has your career, how has the chronology of your career and the different experiences that you've had, I guess, then from PTRM and then moving into the startup world, how has that happened? How has that come to be? It's actually been a a back and forth. So came out of the army, went into startups. I then after eToys went bankrupt, went and started two companies with a classmate of mine from West Point and probably would have started a third, but September 11th happened. And I was recruited to actually go back into government service, went and worked for the State Department in their counterterrorism office, spending most of my time in Southwest Asia and Africa, and then transitioned back to grad school. And the main reason I went to PRTM was because they were standing up a private equity practice. And I wanted to go into private equity. At the time, private equity firms wouldn't take you if you didn't have an investment banking background. And so I thought I was done with startups. And this was my path to get into the private equity world. Ironically, as as you said, a few years into PRTM, I was recruited by a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East that was basically a very well-funded startup. Uh, They recruited a group of people to come in and build the first ever global Arab energy company. So we were given a piggy bank and told to go out and acquire whole companies in the energy field with the only restriction being that we could not invest in the Middle East. And so we went out in our first two years, we did $22 billion in acquisitions in 14 different countries, everything from upstream oil and gas to midstream pipeline and storage to downstream power generation. And then each one of us had a corporate role, and I was a chief procurement officer. So by the time I left there, we were spending a little over $3 billion a year on everything from pencils to oil rigs, which was a fascinating experience and a a much different startup than I was used to. Did you know anything about energy before (laughs) you joined Taka? So it's probably one of the first times in a job interview, and I interviewed with a gentleman who was going to be the CEO. And I told him, I said, I got to be honest with you. The most I know about energy is how to put gas in my car. <laughs> and and he laughed because he had come from the oil and gas space. And I was being pulled in because of my supply chain and procurement background. And he said, we'll teach you energy. I need someone to understand supply chain and procurement. And so that's what I was brought in to do. So what do you think the takeaways are from that? From that particular experience? Yeah, not from the actual working at Taka, but from the fact that you didn't have a background in energy, but you had obviously a lot of skills to bring to bear. Absolutely. So, I mean, take, for instance, what we're doing now, machine learning. I can tell you that not one of my engineers had ever worked at a nonprofit before they started this. They may have donated to, they may have donated some time, but none of my engineers understood the nonprofit world. That has not hindered them from producing one of the greatest AI technologies offered to the nonprofit world right now. They came on board and they learned very quickly. Did they have a little bit steeper learning curve? Absolutely. So I think the takeaway is 
as long as you have a skill that you're good at, there are a variety of fields you may be able to apply it to if you're willing to put in the extra effort. I didn't go into that job just waiting for information to be fed to me. Before I even started the job, I was voraciously reading everything I could on the energy sector to understand it better and understand how it applied to what I did understand, which was supply chain and procurement. Before I ask you the final time for coffee questions, I try to ask all my guests, Sean. I'm curious, how many careers would you say you've had to date? I say just for example that I've had four. I spent 20 years as a journalist. Then I went into the public relations field for a couple of years. Then I went into the nonprofit world for about seven years. And now I'm a startup entrepreneur, a different type of startup entrepreneur, obviously, from you, and a podcaster. So this is my fourth career. Interesting. So I, I guess I'd have to say I would group my startups, even though they've been spread out over 20 years, as one career. Each one of them varied, obviously, but I wouldn't count each individual startup as a different career. I would count my time as in service as a career, both my time in the military and my time at the State Department. And honestly, I, I hope I get a chance to serve again at some point for this country. I would also group in there. I started a nonprofit at one point right after September 11th and have been very involved in the nonprofit space outside of just board work. And so I would include nonprofits as a career. And one career which I started in the past decade and plan to develop more over time is my career as an investor. So my wife and I started investing, angel investing in companies. And that has been just an absolutely wonderful experience and something I hope that I'll be able to carry forward. What do you think that message is or that lesson is for our young listeners who are still in school, may have just graduated, and are trying to think through what they're going to be doing with their lives and how life, especially on the professional side, tends to unfold. I think the lesson I, I wish I had understood when I thought I was going to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that was the only path forward, is that life does just what you said. It unfolds. And life is about experiences and garnering as many as you can. And so not being in a rush to get down any one path and embracing what is in front of you and really experiencing it, internalizing those experiences so that you can carry them forward into that next endeavor. But I can tell you that when I graduated West Point now 26 years ago, I had absolutely no idea that I would get into the startup world, let alone be running an AI machine learning company. And probably also for our listeners who are hearing what sounds like a woodpecker, <laughs> I'm guessing, yeah. is that your phone with text messaging? My apologies. No, no, I just thought because there, I heard a few of them and then I thought, well, maybe Sean does have a woodpecker in his office at home. <laughs> I wish I had that kind of pet. That would be a woodpecker called slap <laughs> that is uh, letting off notifications. My apologies. Oh, no, no problem. So I think that's such an important point, your last point, Sean, about how life unfolds and also the role that the relationships that you have, the friendships that you make as an undergrad, if you're in the military service, these incredible deep relationships that you forge and in graduate school and in the working world, they oftentimes open doors for you that you can't even imagine. You're absolutely right. And 
I mentioned France, who's my co-founder. France and I, as, as I said, have known each other for, for 25 years. But for France reaching out to me, we would have not started Boodle. I would be on doing something else. Another great example, my CTO, a gentleman named Ansel Tang, was the VP of engineering at eToys. I've known Ansel for 20 years. He is a very talented engineer who's built some amazing platforms in his life, has a PhD out of the University of Maryland. And we had a, a very good and strong VP of engineering when we started Boodle. But he unfortunately, uh, I won't say unfortunately, he had a, a child, which is a wonderful thing, but decided he wanted to be a dad, not a, a full-time VP of engineering at a startup. And about a year and a half into the company, I was at a loss without someone to lead the team, but had been in touch with Ansel over the years. We had stayed friends since departing at eToys and called him up and the timing was right. He was actually looking at new opportunities and brought him on and he has transformed this company and where we've gone. But to your point, those are two relationships I started early on. I never planned either one of them to work with 20 some odd years later. But here we are, and, and I'm much better for it. Well, here's another opportunity for you to illustrate what you said in our Espresso Shots interview. And by the way, check out show notes to see if Sean's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But in that episode, Sean, you said one of the best things that can happen for you in life is that you can fail. So could you share a time in your professional life when you failed and how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? So I'll share something that about only half a dozen people know right now. So after my second startup, which failed miserably and uh, lost almost everything, uh, I was living in Los Angeles and I spent a little over three months homeless. Uh, literally living in my car, uh, lost my apartment, pretty much lost everything. And at the time, I, I still had a gym membership. So I would literally sleep in the gym parking lot and go in in the morning and was in the best shape of my life because I could afford to do two to three hour workouts in the morning, but would shower and shave there. And this was pre 9-11. So I could head over to the airport. And I still had from my professional days, my red carpet membership for United. And I would head into the red carpet lounge and spend the day there because number one, they would feed you. And number two, there were a lot of business travelers coming through. And when you're sitting in the red carpet lounge, people assume that you have a job. And that was how I networked. And that was how I found my next opportunity. But it took over three months of that. And that was a it was a dark time. I didn't even tell my parents. They had no idea. But it was I knew firsthand from other experiences I'd gone through that there are tougher things to go through. And I also knew in the back of my mind that I, I had resources out there. I had friends who, if I called upon them, could have slept on a couch, I could have slept on a floor, but I didn't want to. And uh, so went through that. That has fortified me in, in things I've done since then. It's allowed me to realize how bad things can get. And no matter how bad some days may seem, I realize that I'm, I'm not sleeping in my car. And so it's actually not that bad. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sean. It says so much about you, not only that you would share that with me and with our listeners, but the fact that you were so strategic about the membership 
that you kept, the memberships, and the fact that you knew that if you hung out in the airport lounge, that you would be able to network and did network. What was the job that you got during that period of time just before you got hired? The job I got was before prior to September 11th was actually with another consulting firm, which, you know, not a startup, but went into consulting, which I had done in the past, which my resume spoke to and did that job until September 11th when I went back into government service. Thank you again for sharing that, Sean. And I really do hope that brings comfort to our young listeners because holy cow, has Sean come a long way from there. And it can happen to any of us and does happen to us. I mean, I've shared a number of times the fact that I was fired twice in my 40s and look back on that time. And it didn't take me that long before I felt this way, Sean, with tremendous gratitude that I experienced that because I know how to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Final T for C question. If you could go back to West Point and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? So the advice I'm going to give myself, I know that if your demographic of listeners are in college or just college graduates, they're going to roll their eyes as I would have if I'd heard the same thing. But I would tell myself to really embrace the the coursework. I recently moved back to, well, four years ago, moved back to the country. And in storage were all my old books. I still had all my books from college. And as I was pulling them out, I realized how much I missed because I kind of glossed through or did the bare minimum in, a, in anything that wasn't computer science related. And there were some fascinating history courses and philosophy courses and other courses I took that I now wish I had the time to dig in and learn and know that information. You and me both, Sean. <laughs> oh, my God. And I wasn't training the way you were at West Point. So it's not like you were partying with your buddies, right? I mean, you were doing a lot of stuff that was much more meaningful. But I can tell you, given the choice between partying or reading a physics book, I was probably going to opt for the party. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Sean, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I wish you and your colleagues at Boodle continued success. Sounds like you're going great guns. And I hope you and your family stay safe during this challenging time. And just, again, appreciate so much the service that you have given to protect this nation. Andrea, thanks so much for having me. I, I wish a podcast like this had existed when, when I was getting my start in the entrepreneurial world. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this and for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.